0: This morning's reading is from the book of Philippians, chapter one, verses 18 through 26. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right, well, good morning. My name is Jonathan, and I get to serve as a pastor of our church. If you are new to Trinity or if you're new to Christianity, maybe you're on the outside looking in, maybe a friend has invited you and you have found yourself here because it's Mother's Day. And maybe your mother wanted to go to church today, and you have joined her, but church is not part of your routine. Uh, Let me just simply say, we get it, we understand that, and we know that coming into this space could feel strange and forced, but maybe God has something intended for you today, and that's my hope and prayer is that you will see something, feel something, and uh, maybe the storyline of God and Christianity, which has felt far from you, foreign, maybe you've been hurt by God. Maybe he'll begin the process of restoring something in your heart. Our church is designed for people like that, whether you are a Christian or you're not a Christian. We want to be a place that's restorative because we're getting you to a person who heals. Jesus is a healer. And if you're in this room today and you're experiencing emotional pain, physical pain, social pain, relational pain, Jesus is faithful. We've sung that, but the scriptures teach that, that he's kind and he's good. So no matter where you are today, welcome to Trinity. Glad that you're here. We're in a series that we have entitled Practicing Freedom. We're in the book of Philippians. I'm going to introduce that and then jump into this incredible text. Let me simply say this. I'm excited to preach, but I'm also excited to be a Christian in this season and in this social moment. There is so much happening in the world. We are avoiding the news because you don't know what you're going to be confronted with the next time you turn it on. You know there's complexity in your life, in your workspaces, in your dreams, in the visions that you have for your relationships. There's an immense amount of tension and complexity. And as I've listened to that, I see so many people who are so hurt and so lost. But there's something that Christianity has to say, something that it offers And I'm so thankful to be a Christian in this season because without it, I would be lost and wandering. And what Jesus has the ability to do is to provide you a roadmap for understanding complexity. Was the word that Jeff used, prolepsis, that there's a longing for what's coming, but there's tension in the moment, and there's Jesus through all of it because he's alive, And so we want to take you into that experience of what we're calling practicing freedom. To practice freedom may seem strange, but let me say, it takes practice to be able to be free. You would say, but well, wait a minute, we have all sorts of freedoms and rights and liberties. Of course we do, but I'm talking about your heart, mind, and soul, that you can get into your car as a free person, and you can drive completely enslaved to what's in front of you. We have to learn how to practice freedom, and that's what Paul is teaching the, the, the people in this small church called Philippi as he writes to them. So just a little bit of context, and we'll jump into this part of chapter 1. Um, The the letter to the Philippians is written from house arrest, most likely from the city of Rome. This is where the Apostle Paul is. He's the author, and he's writing to a young church. Now, Paul is in prison, but he hasn't committed any crimes, and he hasn't harmed anyone. All he has done is refused to stop talking about his first love which is a person named Jesus. He's like, I'm not going to stop talking about him. And he's found his way into prison. He's in Rome and he's writing to a church that he started and he planted. They have supported him financially. They have sent help, provision, money, probably food. They're helping pay his rent because as a prisoner in Rome, you didn't get free rent. I mean, what an insult to the prisoner. All right, you're in jail and you have to pay to be here. He didn't have the ability to do that, so other churches were chipping in to be able to provide for him, and so he's writing to give an update, and encouragement, and to say thank you. And here, this is really important, Paul is writing to inform the Philippians that he expects to be released and to see them again, but if he doesn't, if he does not get released and the secular powers at work within the Roman Empire decide that Paul were better off dead, He's writing to say, I'm okay with that. That's what he's writing to say. If they deem that it's better for me to be dead, what he's also saying is, I actually agree with them. It would be better for me if I weren't here, but it would be better for you if I stay. And so he's wrestling with that tension in this part of the letter. This sentiment from Paul, it's not a morbid death wish. It's not this sad resolve to kind of say, if I don't get released, I don't want to get my hope set on it, so I'm not going to bank on it. He's not saying, oh, he's not kind of, kind of hedging his bets on getting out or staying in. What he's saying is, I have a hope and a meaning in my life that something even as permanent as death, it can't disrupt. That's what he's saying. That's what he's pointing to. At the center of Paul's life was a substance that suffering and imprisonment and unfair accusations and betrayal and even death could not erode. And I believe that's what every person in this room is wanting and hoping for. You were looking for a meaning like that, but so often we do not know where to find it. And this is why I'm so grateful to be a Christian. Christianity points us in the direction of a life that has such resilience and an indestructible meaning that even the hardest things in life cannot take it away. So the three things I'm going to walk you through from this text are number one, meaning, number two, satisfaction, and number three, we're going to look at this theme of self-forgetting. All right? That's where we're headed, meaning, satisfaction, and self-forgetting. So under part one in meaning... And a really wonderful book that i encourage you to consider picking up it's lesser known but it's by tim keller and it's entitled making sense of god here's what he writes he says physician professor and author atul gawandi tells of a doctor working at a nursing home who persuaded its administrator to bring in dogs cats parakeets a colony of rabbits and even a group of laying hens to be cared for by the residents the results were significant the residents began to wake up and come to life People who we had believed weren't able to speak started speaking. People who had been completely withdrawn and non-ambulatory started coming to nurses stations and saying, I'll take the dog for a walk. All the parakeets were adopted and named by the residents. The use and need for psychotropic drugs for agitation dropped significantly to 38% of the previous level, and deaths fell to 15%. Why? The architect of these changes concluded, I believe that the difference in death rates can be traced to the fundamental human need for a reason to live. So, to have a great job, to have a beautiful home, two cars, and a white picket fence to get to live in a city like San Diego, to have everything that the American dream promises and more is absolutely nothing if you lack meaning. Purpose in life. Provides the why. Intention is critical. Small example. You go to Vons and you're doing the shopping because Mother's Day has come and you need to provide. I don't go to Vons as often as my wife. Shame on me. I'm trying to make my way around, but there's men in there. They don't know how to drive the carts. Guy ends up bumping into me, but I realize that it's Accidental. All right, He didn't have an intention to hit me or to hurt me. I might be able to kind of glance it off, brush it off, not a big deal. But as this guy's coming through and I realize that he has an intention to hurt me, he's got an agenda, he wants to get to the line first and he's reckless and he bumps in and he has an agenda to hurt, all of a sudden the exact same activity has now caused an issue. Now I'm a pastor, I would never have a problem with anybody, right? I don't have a temper, nothing's gonna happen because pastors are perfect. I get that, but let's just assume on that day I didn't have a good day and I'm gonna get a little upset with this individual. The reality is the exact same activity is charged with meaning because there's intention behind the activity. One is accidental, I brush it off, and one has purpose, and I take it to heart. See, and you can live the exact same life. You can have all of the exact same things. It looks the exact same way, but one feels purposeless, and one is charged with meaning, and one is going to get to your heart, and that's what Christianity is after. To quote Keller again, he says, If people say that their lives are meaningless, it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have good jobs, family, and friends, and the means to live in a materially comfortable way. It means that they are not sure what all the activity is being done for. Put another way, they are not sure that all they're making and getting actually matters, makes a difference, or accomplishes anything beyond itself. Hmm. Got to stop and think about what we do, what we purchase, why we go to those places, why we dream about the things we dream about. Let me take you to the word significance for a moment. Think about this word. It comes from the root word sign, and sign is always something that, of course, Points beyond itself. You don't stop at the sign. The sign gives you directions to something beyond itself, to something greater, which means all of us are looking for significance, which means all of us are looking for something bigger and greater. Very simple. We're all hunting for the why, and Paul's why comes in verse 20. Look at verse 20 with me. He says, again, his expectation, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, here's his purpose, here's his why, so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. I love that phrase. He says, now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. The word that the NIV translation translates as exalted is megaluno. This is where we get the word magnified. He's saying, I want Jesus to be magnified in my life if I get to go on living, and I want him to be magnified and exalted in my death if that's what is coming. This is his life's overarching purpose. This is his point. This is what wakes him up in the morning that Christ would be magnified and made much of. Now let's admit this that one of the most demanding parts of our moment here in the 21st century is the demand and the burden of meaning making write that phrase down not meaning discovering we have to make meaning for ourselves because we're autonomous we're independent in the past we would we would generally get meaning from religion, or the God that we follow and trust, or our community. But this is being pushed away as something that's going to infringe on your freedom. This is why we have to learn to practice a new kind of freedom that actually brings life and helps other people. But this burden of meaning-making is extreme, and it's huge. Why are high schoolers more stressed out than people in their 60s and 70s who are just at the cusp of figuring out life? People who are mid-career and advancing, there are high schoolers all the statistics say that the anxiety level in college freshmen is higher than it's ever been it's because on their shoulders is this burden of meaning making man I've got four years to figure out what life's about let me say that this is another reason I'm glad I'm a Christian I don't have to figure that out I don't have to figure that out I'm here for him And he's so good and he's so big and he gives me immense freedom in figuring out how to live life on this planet for him. But the burden of meaning making is absolutely crushing. So many of us are looking in this enlightened society for something that we can make and not discover. And it continually eludes us. I want you to think about that word magnify for a moment. To magnify means to increase in significance. It means to amplify something, right? To make it so much bigger, so much larger. To be a human means that purpose is critical to a healthy life. Life must have a larger meaning. So this means that we are all magnifying something, okay? Your life, if somebody were to put your heart Your behaviors under the microscope, they would begin to kind of get the weeds out of the way, but they would begin to see that there is, in fact, something at the center that you are magnifying, that you are amplifying. The question is, what is it? What is that thing in your life? What's there? A few years ago, I attended the funeral of a man that I did not know very well, But I was saddened by the stories that were told over and over again, mostly about money, status, and golf. And I thought to myself, man, at my funeral, I hope nobody talks about any of these things. Not one of them. And I, mind you, I spend a lot of time thinking about some of those things, unfortunately. Not the golf part. I need help, all right? I need some help. But I will think about the the money, I'll think about status, I'll think about what people think of me, but those are not the stories that you want told when somebody says, that life had a life of meaning. See, your life is magnifying something, and the people were there to celebrate that man's life, they were searching for something, but all they had bumped into, and I know he had more substance than this, this is just what I was listening to as an outsider, what stories are being told, what is your life magnifying? What is your life lifting up? Verse 21, Paul says, For to me to live is Christ, for to me to die is gain. For Paul, life's purpose was wrapped up in his understanding of Jesus, and his mission was to amplify and to magnify and to exalt Jesus Christ. He wanted people to see the greatness of the Savior. He wanted people to experience grace, people who were lost and hurting. This was what woke him up. And let me say, you could go, man, good for Paul. Good for Paul. Man, I've read about Paul. I've read all his letters. Good for him. That's descriptive of his life. That's not prescriptive of Christianity. Let me say that's a wrong assumption. What you see written here about the life of Paul is prescriptive of all Christians, This is not for the great Christians, not for the apostolic Christians, not for the preacher on stage. This is for anybody and everybody who follows Jesus, truly. This is what it means to be a Christian, that in your life, whatever you get to do, nurse, doctor, physician, mother, father, any of the things that you get to do, you get to exalt him. This guy's in prison. He wants to preach the gospel. He wants to go from city to city to city. He wants to make his way to Spain, but he's sitting with the praetorian guard, remember that from the beginning, and he's preaching the gospel to hardened soldiers. And he goes, it doesn't matter. It's not my life anymore. If I'm here with these guys, I'm gonna talk about Jesus. If I'm over there in Spain, I'm gonna talk about Jesus. Right? To live for Paul is Christ, and death is about him as well. How could Paul say and mean it? Let's ask this question. How could he really say and mean it that to live is Christ and to die is gain? Let me take you to one place where Paul gives us a glimpse. Galatians 2.20. In that letter to another church, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life, I now live in the flesh, in his body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is Paul's motivation. He goes, I don't just know stories about Jesus. I know him, and he loved me, and he gave himself for me. See, that's Paul's story, and that's my story. Anybody who follows Jesus says, that's my story. He knows me. I don't just know about him. There's a big book that'll tell me his story. He knows my name. I know what he has done for me. I do not deserve to be a part of his family, but he has given himself for me, and he has set me free. And so what Paul is doing is he's working this out. He's showing them how to practice the gospel. This is what it means to be a Christian. What a beautiful verse. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and He gave Himself for me. Paul had discovered a source of meaning that had actually discovered him. And every time you enter into a relationship with Jesus, you realize you didn't find Jesus. Jesus found you. Right? Meaning has found you, and in connection to him, things begin to fall into a different sort of place. It doesn't mean it's easy, but the soul begins to get it. I was made for him. I was made by him, and I want more of it. Let me ask you this question before I take you to point two. The question is personal. What are you living for? What are you living for? How would you complete the sentence, to live is fill in the blank. How do you fill in the blank? To live is what? Let me give you a few examples. To live is youth, fitness, and beauty. To die then, because Paul goes back and forth, to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is youth, fitness, and beauty. To die then is aging, wrinkles, and a lack of physical fitness. To live is comfort. To die then is suffering, trial, and unmet expectations. Does that feel at all like it resonates with you? It certainly resonates with me, both of those. To live is my children. To die then is to fail as your children fail. To live is my family, which means death is any, within any and every relational dysfunction. Death is relational dysfunction. To live is my money, to die then is to be broke. And to live is my reputation, which means anything that puts you in a bad light, any failure, anything that exposes the truth about you is death. John Piper comments, he says, death is only fearful to the degree that it threatens to rob you of what you value most. Isn't that amazing? Death is only fearful to the degree that it threatens to rob you of what you value most. Most And because of Jesus' defeat of death on the cross, to live is for him. It's the only logical thing that I could do. I mean, if it's a real story, then i got to follow a real living Savior. It makes sense. But to die only gives me more of him. I get more access to him. I get closer to him. So to live as Christ and to die in the Christian narrative is really and actually gain. So meaning. Let me take you to part two, satisfaction. Now, maybe write this down and go to the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to take you to a couple of verses, but you can go to chapters one and two. It'd be a wonderful modern book to read. Here's what the writer says. This is how he begins. He begins with these words, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything Is meaningless. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart. No pleasure. This is his introduction to the letter. You go, whoa, 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 this is kind of intense. But tell me more. I need to know why. What's going on in this meaningless world? You seem like you have everything. But even after all of his searching in chapter 2, you know what he concludes? He says, so I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Jonathan Haidt, he says that this man was not just battling the fear of meaninglessness, he was battling the disappointment of success. He's battling the disappointment of success. And we understand that there is no real correlation between how much we have or how much money we have and happiness and satisfaction. I think intuitively, we've seen enough stories, we've been in enough places that are different and impoverished, and we go, man, they're as happy as we are. We understand that there needs to be a bare minimum level of a threshold we need to get to, but then happiness is not contingent on anything else outside of what's going on in the human spirit, but we don't want to believe that. It's as if we don't want that to be true. We prefer to believe as if there's something under the sun, as the writer says, that can satisfy the desires of the human heart. Man, this writer, this writer who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, many assume it's King Solomon, he is looking for something to magnify. He's looking for something to make bigger, also to make his life worthwhile. He's trying to connect to a bigger storyline. And he goes, look, I've planted things, I've made things, I've purchased things, I've been to gardens. He loves, he's got a green thumb. He goes, over here, I'm building homes, I'm collecting money, I'm investing, I've got women and wives and sexuality, and all of it has left him empty. So he hated him. His life, and he concluded that it was meaningless. Look again at verse 20 of our text. Paul says in verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now as always Christ will be exalted, the same word, magnified in my body, whether by life or or by death, when he talks about exalting and magnifying Jesus in his life and his death, you're getting very close to our understanding of the word and experience of worship. Magnify, exalt, and worship is what we are doing right here in this space. Worship biblically is finding your worth and your satisfaction God. It's not just like opening up a, a, a hymnal or a worship guide. It's not just reading a few prayers. It is saying, I find my ultimate satisfaction in you. You are the meaning maker. I am the meaning discoverer. And I am here because you have exposed meaning to me in a person. I am finding my satisfaction finally in you. And because that's true, I'm going to lift my voice. I'm going to sing. I'm going to pray with earnestness. And it's not just in the 30 to 45 minutes that we get to do that together. It becomes a life. It becomes a lifestyle. As I've said before, my man's in prison. And this is what he's writing in order to update these other Christians who are learning to practice freedom. He goes, let me show you while I'm chained to two soldiers. What this can look like. Magnification, exalting is so close to the biblical concept of worship. So when Paul says to live as Christ and to die as gain, what he's saying is that Christ has actually become his great source of satisfaction. Paul got a sense of worth from his understanding of Jesus. But for many of us, that's simply not the case. We are still meaning makers, looking to create the good life for ourselves, and there is often a trajectory to our search. Let me just give you a couple of those steps. When we are searching for satisfaction, we begin like this. I think we have a little chart for this. Number one, we begin with youthful optimism. What we are saying at the beginning is, I'm assuming it is out there, and I'm going to find it. And we come with so much energy, and we come with so much expectation. There's got to be a place. There's got to be a career. There's got to be a person that's going to help me feel like my life is worth living. There's something missing, but it is out there, and I am going to find it. Youthful optimism. We're going to search for it. We're going to bank on it. We're going to go to schools, and we're going to assume that something, some person is going to give it to me. But then it leads to number two, resentment. I have not found it yet. And then you get to a certain age in your life, you begin to blame things on structures and systems. I grew up in a bad system. I didn't have the right support. I didn't get to go to the school of my choice. But right, If I just had more support, all of that may be true, but you haven't found it yet. And so there's resentment that begins to build up in the human heart. I wish I could find it if I just had a better run, if I'd just been dealt a different deck of cards, if I had a different set, I could have moved forward. So we begin to blame. Then there's some of us who push hard. You have a lot of drive. And I know there's a lot of people in this room like this. You have moved forward in life, and you have actually achieved a fair amount. But then you begin to look around and you go, but I'm still missing it. I mean, I've accomplished a lot. I've met so many goals. But it is still missing. And so you know what you do at that point? You begin to say, if I just had a little bit more, if I just had the better job, if I just had a better marriage. If I just had a different family, if I was just living in a different city, if I didn't have that boss, I could get ahead and I could find it. Drive, right? I'm going to just go ahead and get ahead. And then what that leads you at the very end is despair because you've worked so hard and you still don't have it. And so you see the other people, you're assuming that they have it. So you think to yourself, it must be something about me. It must be something about me. I couldn't find it. You see yourself in this story. You see yourself somewhere in there. We do not have to throw our hands up in despair. The Bible has something to say about the source of real satisfaction. And again, it comes back to worship. Or said another way, as Augustine would have put it, it comes back to rightly ordered Loves. The reason God began the Ten Commandments, there's ten of them, and he begins with this one, you shall have no other gods before me. Rightly ordered loves was because he knew, number one, that he was the most glorious, worthy being in the entire universe, and to love and serve anything other than him is spiritual suicide. That's why it's number one. Love God first. If you don't, your life will be a train wreck, no doubt. You will end up in despair. And number two, God knew that anything else at the center of your heart would ruin your heart. That's how good he is. Anything else at the center of the human heart will ruin you. Here's how C.S. Lewis put it. Lewis writes, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger while there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. Lewis is saying that satisfaction exists, but you are never going to find it. It has to find you. That's what he's saying. Search all you want. You are not going to find it. But there's something called satisfaction, aka Jesus, the Son of God, the meaning maker. He says, I'm coming for you satisfaction found the Apostle Paul when he found Jesus and then satisfaction finds Christians when Jesus gets a hold of their heart he's saying Christ is primary Christ is first love Christ is out front this is the first commandment love the Lord your God he's got a name his name is Jesus Christ he's got a father and there's a Holy Spirit love him first And everything else will make sense. John 4 says, you're always going to be thirsty if you always drink from your own well. But Jesus says, there is a water that will fill you up to overflowing, and I want to give it to you. He is the satisfaction source. I want to encourage you, as I wrap this part up, I want you to take satisfaction inventory. How do you complete that sentence? To live is fill in the blank. What's in your life? Right, what do you sense? What do you see? What do you feel if you're honest? How do you put, what do you put there? Let me ask this question. What's taken the place of Jesus? What's duped you and left you wanting, thinking that it's just around the corner? See, this is the process of defining this. This is the process of what Christianity calls repentance. Repentance. And repentance isn't this killjoy tradition where God wants to take everything good from you. He goes, no, 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 I'm the source of your satisfaction. If you put anything else in that blank, it will leave you wanting it's spiritual, spiritual suicide. Repentance is restorative. This is what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus. Guess what? I gotta do this all the time. This is not a foreign concept. It's not a strange thing for me, at least. This is something I do every day. You know, when I get ready to preach, you know what I say to myself? Dear Jesus, I am prone to steal your glory. Make this about you. I'm a glory thief. I will step into this space and make this about me. This has nothing to do with me. I'm a messenger that gets to tell you a great story. But because my heart is twisted, it wants to take my profession and turn it into something that gives me glory. What about you? What do you live for? repentance is the replacement of counterfeit approval. I love you, but you're not enough for me. Okay? I love all of you, but you're not enough for me. I need something bigger. And God says, I speak life into your soul. You don't need approval from your church. Go and be a pastor. Love them well. What about you? Right? What do you fill the blank? What's in your story? Jesus says when you replace that and it changes in your life, you're going to find more satisfaction than you ever thought possible. But let me take you to the last part, and it's short. Self-forgetting. Meaning, satisfaction, and self-forgetting. Look at verse 21. For to me to live is Christ. In fact, in the Greek, there's no, there is no verb. It's so cool. What he's saying is for me to live, Christ. To die, Gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better, better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being... With you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of us. He's hard-pressed between what he considers two great options. He goes, they might take my life, which would be far better. I get to be with him finally. I get to be with Jesus. He goes, but convinced that you need me right now, I'm convinced that I will stay. This is, these are his two options that are pressing upon him. Death is the ultimate source of, Of FOMO, isn't it? It's the ultimate source of missing out. What pleasures, experiences, people will death steal from you? But if our ultimate joy is no longer circumstantial, people, places, things, but it's based on Christ's love for you, then you can actually forget about yourself. And I'm not advocating for for a, a lack of self care, I'm not advocating for humiliation. I am advocating for a life that says my meaning and satisfaction are so stable, so anchored, and so resilient, I can actually forget about myself and start thinking about other people. This is what Paul is saying has happened in his life. The Holy Spirit is creating a community of people who follow Jesus, whose greatest satisfaction is Christ, and whose greatest ambition is to give themselves away for the good of other people. That's what it means to be a Christian. You exalt in Christ, you honor him, and you give yourself away for the good of other people. Because guess what? Because meaning settled, I don't gotta steal it from you or you or you or anybody else. I don't have to manipulate you. I'm free to serve. Free to practice the freedom of the gospel. This is what it means to be human. And this is why I'm so thrilled to tell you About Jesus. Why is this the case? It's because it's modeled on the gospel. It's what Jesus has already done for Paul. When Jesus said, and he prayed, Lord, not my will, but yours, he was saying, I desire to, to depart and be with my Father, but it's better for your progress and joy in the faith for me to stay. And that's why he went to the cross. And so all of Paul's life is modeled on that. It's modeled on Jesus. This is the sort of community that can change the fabric of our city. And I want to just lead us as we close. You can go ahead and prepare. Close your eyes if you'd like. I want to lead us in a prayer that's going to get to meaning, satisfaction, and self-forgetting. Lord Jesus, I believe the gospel is big enough to change an entire city like San Diego. But it's got to start right here with an individual heart. That satisfaction inventory is so simple, but it is going to expose us. Are we scared of exposure? We love reputation. We love money. We love what people say about us. We love our kids. We love the future dreams we have. We love our possessions. We love power. We love comfort. We love so many things. you've come to restore first loves because unless you do, we will search and search and search. We will cry out like the writer of Ecclesiastes, this life you've given us is meaningless, but the meaning maker has come. He's entered into our sin. He's into, entered into our brokenness. And so we cry out to you in repentance, not because you're a killjoy God, but because you restore all things. Jesus, teach us to exalt in you, teach us to be satisfied in you, teach us to sing as if we were actually satisfied in Christ, teach us not to hold back, teach us not to be ashamed, teach us not to think about the people around us who might think us strange if we confess our sin. With our heart and not just our lips. If we sing to you with hands raised because we want to, because you've satisfied our heart, the searching can be over. Would you end it for us today? No more searching for meaning. Meaning has come. His name is Jesus. Lord God, lead us into a season of knowing you better, of filling in the blank truly from the heart to live as Christ and to die as gain. Make that true here, we pray in Jesus' great name, amen.